Thanks for thanks for hanging in there with me. I lost all my I lost all my tabs that I had open. So let me see if I open them up real quick here. Just give me like five seconds. Chris's copious research tabs. Well, I have yeah. I just I had some stuff open. I I wanted to make sure that uh, that I could just refer to it while we were talking. You want to sound smart. Well, I I want to sound not dumb. <laughs> I think there's a, like a small, small distinction between those two. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, the Z DevOps Talks with Chris and Chris. What episode is this of our lockdown series? Oh, goodness, this is like episode three, four of the lockdown series, I think. Something like yeah, that. I think three or four, I think. It could be the honorary four, even if it is three. But yeah, welcome yeah. back for the our, our special lockdown edition. Uh, really no different than our regular editions. It's just that we're you know, we're, we're producing these remotely now. So, um, but we have, um, this is, this is, this marks the, this, we have got two firsts, I believe here. So, um, this, this is the first episode. This marks the first ep- episode where we have, where we've had two guests. Okay. Uh, Rosalind Radcliffe and, uh, Gary Groover. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the first. Uh, and the second is, I believe this is the first time we've had, um, somebody outside of IBM on the podcast. So thank big you for a uh, real yeah, big yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is good. We've uh, um, uh, we've taken the champagne bottle and proverbial hull the ship, and you know we've uh, I don't know what do they do? What do you call that? They've uh, blessed it. Christen, 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 blessed it. Yeah, <laughs> christening um, the Chris and Chris podcast. Sorry, Ooh, someone had to do yeah. it. That's good. Yeah. All right. So um, so we're here with Gary Groover. Gary, um, I don't even know where to start. I mean. You have had a um, quite the quite the career. Um, I, I think you spent a lot of time at uh, HP, and oh. then um, not so much a lot of not so much uh, not the same amount of time, but with Macy's, and then but uh, now you're uh, with uh, Groover Consulting, which is which is your consulting, right? So as um, I think that's I mean you 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 did some things before HP, but I think the large majority of your career was was with with HP and. Um, I, you know, I, when I, when I saw, when I saw that, I, I don't know why, but it's, it, it, I thought, oh, HP, I remember reading that somewhere. Where did I read that? Where did I read that? And, and chapter 11 of the DevOps handbook yeah. is all about, it's all about where, it's all about you basically. Uh, or that, I mean, there's, there's a large, large part of that chapter it has to do with Gary Groover and the work that he did with HP. And so that's, that's where I had to remember that from. I had not drawn the connection. I had not, I had not made that connection until I started, you know, doing some research for this episode. So anyway, uh, I, I've read about you. I, I, I know of you, so I'm very happy that you're, you're here with us. Um, and we couldn't have done it without Rosalind. So th- thank you, Rosalind for the introduction. Thanks Rosalind. Um, yeah. But uh, Gary, would you mind talking a little bit about, you know, kind of what, um, you know, your career, what's led you to where you are now, and then that can kind of get us into the, you know, some of the topics of things that we want to cover today. Sure. I yeah. spent a long time at HP. I started in manufacturing and moved my way around into product development. And as I was doing product development, firmware was the biggest bottleneck for the LaserJet organization. We couldn't get products out on time. We couldn't get the features we needed. And that was okay for a while when we were competing on print speed and print quality. But after a while, when you started connecting scanners to the internet, you need security and different things. How we competed based on firmware started becoming more and more important. 
and we just didn't have the capacity to resolve that. After having tried to do product development on the outside looking in, I got an opportunity to take over leading a group of, you know, four to 800 different developers over time and figured that there had to be a better way and started down the path of trying to figure out new and different ways of doing things. Uh, 2008 hit and I had to go from 800 people to 400 people in 30 days and figure out how to get this completely re-architecture of 10 million lines of code done so we could start shipping products and get it out the door. And so I spent every day coming in trying to figure out how the organization could become more effective, more efficient, and went on this journey to fundamentally transforming how we did things. And at the end of it, we probably got a two to three X improvement in business productivity. We were doing 4X the number of products. We were doing 8X the amount of innovation at half the cost. And so it was a huge breakthrough for me. It was a huge breakthrough for my business. It kind of got me in the mode of sharing my first book, which was kind of a case study of that, which was referenced in the DevOps handbook and a lot of other places where you used to hear Gene and Jez talk. They almost always referenced it because it, it had those quantifiable breakthroughs in productivity that we were able to do because it was number of products and different things that was easier to measure with embedded firmware and because people didn't think you could do this type of stuff with embedded firmware. So wrote the first book, A Practical Approach to Large-Scale Agile, and got that out there and started speaking and helping people a little bit. And the reason we did it is because it was such a breakthrough for us and we wanted to share those ideas with other people. After that, I went to Macy's. About the same time, Jez and David Farley had come out with their continuous delivery book, and Jez was down the street, and I couldn't afford to bring him in and hire him at Macy's, but I could <laughs> afford to buy him beer. So I'd, I'd go buy him beer, and I'd talk about so this is how you thought it was going to work for 40 people. We've got thousands of people. How do you expect this to work? What were you thinking? And and, and we'd go through that debate and we'd sure. optimize it and try it based on you know what I'd learned at HP. And he was a big fan of that book. I was a big fan of his book. And we'd go back and forth sharing ideas and started down the continuous delivery pathway at Macy's.com and did that for, oh, about three years. And then after that, I just, my wife didn't land that well in the Bay Area and wanted to move back to Idaho. And I got tired of commuting to see her. So I pulled the plug and started consulting and trying to help as many people as I could on their journey. And that led me to my next book, which was starting and scaling DevOps and enterprise, which was kind of capturing a little bit of what I was doing for consulting so that I could quantify it and repeat it at different clients in different ways. And mm -hmm. after doing that for, I don't know, four or five years, I came to the conclusion that if we were going to improve at the rate that software requires, we need a more systematic approach. We can't just copy what others have done and hope it helps for us and came out with the process of engineering the digital transformation where I, I really looked at, you know, here's what manufacturing did and why. Here's how software is different. Here's what we can learn from manufacturing, but here's how what we have to do different for a systematic approach for software. And got that book out and self-published it and been promoting it and trying to get people to read it and working through that process. And that's, I think, a good systematic approach. But what I've realized as I start rolling it out in organizations is not that many people read anymore. 
So one <laughs> people could be on a common framework and do that sort of thing. It, it just you couldn't get a group of people to read it and drive the change. Sure. But people do training. And I so late my latest invention is turning it into a computer based training program, a lot based off of um the framework that Lean Six Sigma uses, which is you can learn the concepts quick and easy to get a white belt type certification, but if mm-hmm. you get higher levels of certification, it requires not just proving you understand the concepts, but proving that you can apply them in your own organization with a improvement project where you've got to demonstrate that you've applied the principles and you've removed waste and inefficiencies out of your own organization. So, Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I, I like the. I, I love hearing the parallels between uh, application and software development and manufacturing because there are so many. And I think that was. I know. I, re, I recall that was a big part of not only the DevOps handbook but the Phoenix project as well. And I, I, I found the LinkedIn article that you uh, that you have from last November. It's the engineering, the digital transformation software versus manufacturing. You talk about that a lot in there as well, which is really neat. Rosalind, was there something, was there anything specific that you thought maybe, you know, we should discuss? Is there anything ongoing between the work that Gary's doing and either the work that you're doing or maybe some of the things that we're doing at IBM? Or did you just see like, you know, there, there's some opportunities here to discuss some of the challenges that we face in, in, in DevOps and enterprise DevOps. Well, I think the, the reason that I suggested Gary for this discussion is we're talking enterprise DevOps. And mm-hmm. as Gary mentioned, getting enterprises to change is the challenge. And how, I, I mean, I talk to customers about you have to slow down to speed up. You have to be willing to invest the time in this transformation. And I think this more and more people explaining to the industry and making it clear to these enterprises that this isn't, I'm going to buy a tool and bring it in and be transformed, or I can't just say, I'm going to be DevOps and be DevOps. Mm. This this engineering the transformation, really focusing on transformation is the key that our large enterprises need to hear. And they need to hear it from multiple voices, not just IBM uh, or not just Gary or not just, we need this, this talk out and more widely heard. And the more we can spread these concepts of really working through this transformation, it's critical. And, and in reading Gary's book, uh, it talked about a number of different areas that we trip over in every client we work with. And every time I do the value stream analysis, I'm coming back with recommendations on doing organizational transformation. But how do you do that? And and that's the part we really need to learn from and learn from these experiences where it's been done. Hmm. All right. And, and, and Rosalind, I, we haven't talked about this and just for everybody on the podcast, I, I'm a huge fan of Rosalind. And anytime she asks me to come talk, I'll come talk with her just because she's such a good public speaker. She knows this stuff inside and out. And she, everywhere from the technical details to the high level strategies to how to present and 
convince people. Uh, I, I, I know nobody better in the industry, and I'm a huge fan. So, like to oh. like to help me whenever I can. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. This yeah, is great. We're all big fans. Trust me. Yeah, yeah, I'm on board. In, as we're in our good graces, I think we're. The world will be a better place. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what it, I don't know what it's like not being our good graces, but I just try to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably a good idea. I hope, I hope none of us ever find that out. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, all right, so, um, so, so oh, sorry. So, go ahead, go ahead, Gary. Yeah. yeah, real quick, I ran across a book lately by Johan Berger, who's really—it's a catalyst book. It was in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I tweeted a little bit about it about a month or so ago, and I finally got around to reading it. And it's, I think, a really good framework for how to get better at driving changes in the organization. So, um, really trying to wrap around what he recommends and and what he starts with is you know changing the inertia of doing the same thing the same way is really really hard and Mm -hmm. most people approach it the wrong way They're, they're passionate about wanting to change they try to convince people they need to change they try to talk them into do it they try to tell them what to do and they need to they, if it's not working and they know it's important, they work harder and harder to figure out how to sell them on it. Mm-hmm. And his point is that's the anti-pattern. The harder you push, the harder people will push back and resist this change. And his research shows that the best way to influence change is really to focus on the barriers that are keeping people from changing. People, you know, he, he starts with reactance, right? You don't want to you don't want to force people to react and push back. So how do you avoid that? You need to give them the freedom, the autonomy to react. You need to avoid, you need to allow them to make their choices. You can provide a menu. You can ask, don't tell, you can highlight a gap. But if you're going to, if you're going to help with that, that's a, that's a framework for figuring out how to do it better. And, what I've come to the conclusion of, and I, I kind of knew this intuitive from driving large changes in an organization the size of HP, is that you you need to get people's fingerprints on things and you need to get them ownership. And what I've gotten to with my certification and training is not telling people what to do, not telling them how to do it. But what we really need to do is teach leaders in organizations how to think about software development delivery as a process teach them how to analyze it and teach them how to highlight waste in their organizations and then let them pick. And if you look at what we've done in software, it's either I need a maturity model to tell you what you're screwing up and you need to do these steps in this order. Or if I'm going to roll out agile, I need to push the managers out of the way and expect them not to resist the change. Or I'm going to benchmark what best in class people are doing and say, everybody should do this in this order. (laughs) And it just takes away from the choice. It takes away from the agencies. It, It takes away from them allowing that type of thing. So he's got, you know, a lot of steps that he does to sort of look at the barriers and he talks about how to do that. And what I've noticed is the types of things that he's recommending we don't do or, or what I see being done in software. So I'm, I'm, I just started this morning trying to craft out a white paper after reading it that I'm going to send out to my mailing list that sort of says, okay, here's, here's what he's recommending. Here's, sure. 
Here's what I see as anti-patterns. Here's how the here's how I took a different approach with the engineering the digital transformation training, but I kind of, and, and part of it's because I knew those things intuitively when I was putting in the training, but it, it really puts it in perspective. And I, I, I finally come to the conclusion, we know technically what to do. We know how to make it happen. Sure. But as a software organization, we don't know how to influence change in large organizations very well. Mm. I, I think you made the a key point that the telling people how to do the you're going to be better by following this way of working is causing the pushback. We, I mean, the Z world has this in spades because of the people who've been in the industry as long as I have, the 30 plusers who have been doing work exactly the same way for the last 30 years and telling them they have to do it differently because it's better and it might be better a different way, but it, that doesn't work. Um, and if there are any, eh, any suggestions on how to get that transformation better, uh, we have discovered in, sometimes that if you can get one of a few of those 30 plusers to see the value in the new ways of working, then they help people transform. And I think that goes along the lines of what you were describing. It's they're learning how to apply these new things in their way of working rather than being told this is how you work. Yeah, I see that all the time with the uh, education that I do for IDZ. You know, you have young DevOps agile folks coming in and saying, oh, this is the way to do it. And, you know, I'm sitting there up at the front of the class and saying, you know, listen, there's value here. And you're absolutely right. The pushback is from the folks who really have found a way to be good at what they do and they want to keep doing it. And that's that's difficult, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree when you're taking some methods and tooling and just a way that folks have become proficient at what they do and saying, okay, we're going to turn this whole thing on its head and we're going to start brand new fresh. Um, it's tough, right? Yeah. It's, it's, so we talked a little bit about, about react and how people react when you push them for change. The next one that Johan talks about is endowment, which is a loss of version easing the endowment, letting, letting them change easier. So they're, they're pretty tied into that. And you need to think about how to lower the barriers to that loss diversion. And then, you know, the corroborating evidence is, is number five. The more they can hear it from peers and the more you're, the less you're pushing on them from different places and above and different places, the more likely they are to understand it. And the more you can deal with their uncertainty, which is how do you make it easier to try and reduce upfront costs and make that easy for them to try these new ways of working, the better it's going to go. And, and the biggie, I think, for your Z customers is distance, which is to say if you're way on this side and you're looking at the opportunity for improvement, and so, so you're talking to a large bank that has a huge number of mainframes, a lot of big applications, a large tightly coupled system, that has you know hundreds if not thousands of people working together to do major releases on an ongoing basis that are very high risk 
and you tell them, no, no, the way to do DevOps is have these loosely coupled teams and do microservices and let people reduce things into production. That's so far from how they work and how they think that they're just going to completely discount it. They're not even going to consider changing. But if you look at it and you say, gee, can we teach you how to analyze this process? Can we teach you about some of the new approaches and new concepts? And maybe it's just getting a reliable, stable quality signal with automated tests you can run more often. Whatever it is, let's teach you how to do that and let's let you pick something that's closer to your reality but gets you on the path towards continuous improvement. And and that's so the, the on each of these paths, there's ways and things that you can do to lower the resistance to change and get them started on the continuous improvement journey. And that's that's why I, I've kind of built that into my training and let people choose and get on a continuous improvement journey. But when I read the Catalyst book, it really reinforced why that's working and it and it highlighted for me a lot of the things I think we're doing wrong, right? If you, Rosalind, when you go into a Z, Z customer and you say, yeah, you just need to do microservices and let people push it directly into production. <laughs> I don't say that. Um, yeah, I'm not that crazy. Uh, I talk about changing process and the ways, oh, well, I talk about the ways of working without changing the application to micro. I mean, you can't take the applications that you have today and all of a sudden miraculously make them into a bunch of microservices. And honestly, if you did, they wouldn't perform. And so you can't do it any, you wouldn't want to do it. So you got to think about the right balance. But I, I talk about changing ways of working to help improve the application to make it easier for you to do things like you know automated testing and I absolutely loved your stable quality signal I'm stealing it from my book the idea <laughs> I mean I mean I'm not stealing it I'm I'm saying where I took it from it's going to be a quote and then it's going to be in all the book because this idea of automated testing testing is the thing that makes things faster with high quality. Automated testing is how we achieve this goal. And if we can get this idea of automated testing really to come up in the Z shops, then all of a sudden they actually get a lot of time back. They're wasting so much time today doing lots of manual testing over and over again because they don't have a good way to test. But by using automated testing, getting that stable quality signal, though that honestly, that's where I talk about you have to slow down to speed up because you need to build up at least some minimal set to be confident you know the thing works and you haven't just broken it. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. And, and my biggest disconnect I've had with Gene and Jez over the years is, you know, how you do things with a small, loosely coupled team is going to be very different than how you do DevOps for a large, tightly coupled system. And we, you know, that argument with those two started probably six years ago. And they finally did the research with the accelerated book in 2017. And they said, 
You know, Gary, you're right. The biggest indicator of DevOps success is that you have a loosely coupled architecture. And my conclusion was great. Now we can talk about how do we do DevOps for large, tightly coupled systems and how do we get people on the path to continuous improvement? And their conclusion was, no, the right answer is we need to tell everybody to completely re-architect and go to microservices. And if you read the Unicorn Project, it's it's a story of that, right? How do you do that? And my conclusion was that re-architecture I did for the HP LaserJet firmware was the hardest, most difficult thing I've ever done. I wouldn't wish that on friends. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't I, wish that on enemies. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, right? It's it's just, it, it, yes, you can do architectural changes, and if you can, you should. But when I go into an organization and analyze how they're doing things, there's so much better low-hanging fruit to help people release code on a more frequent basis while enabling all aspects of quality. The, that's kind of the different perspective I bring to the industry is, is how do we do that? How do we analyze it? And you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about in my engineering, the digital transformation book is DevOpsy type stuff, but I've kind of avoided the term and the name because DevOps has seemed to be, no, you need to go to microservices. You need to have these small empowered teams and get out of the way. And for large organizations, that distance from where they're at to what's being described as where you need to be is so far, they just disconnect and disengage. And if we're going to remove the barriers to change and lower those, we need to, the ask that we need to have is a step that's closer to what they see as possible and realistic and reliable and would work for them. And as we do that, the resistance to that change is going to go down. Yeah, I think one of the things I like to talk about along those lines is we're not necessarily talking about frequency of delivery to production because I may not need to deliver to production multiple times a day, but letting me get the fast feedback as a developer in the change I'm making. Can I deploy this? Can I test this? Can I deploy it quickly to understand that the change that I'm making one, works, but two, more importantly, in the system, doesn't break what's already there. And the new getting people to recognize these new ways of working can help them with that, not necessarily worrying about that microservices world that somebody says might be better and some are already realizing really it's not if you need a high-performant it depends on what you're building, but if you need a really high performance, continuous available system, you've got to be careful on what the size of your services are. And my example I always like to use is if I'm swiping a credit card and I want it approved, that better be a, a millisecond, nanosecond kind of transaction. I'm not going to have a thousand microservices making that up. Please just give me an application that makes that fast. So we need to think about what we're building. We need to think about the things, but that doesn't mean the way we work has to be dramatically different. We have to focus on what we're building and what we can do, but let's take those steps in new ways of working and not... Um, not making people stay working the old way, because that's I think that's actually more of the biggest problem. This 
this wonderful situation we find ourselves in, the world is talking about COBOL again, and they're talking about COBOL in a way that says we don't have enough COBOL developers. And there's no way we're going to get more COBOL developers if we make them use an ISPF screen. It's so, I don't know, it's getting people to embrace these new ways of working when you describe that they've got to change so radically from where they are and it's got to be this big two-year complete redo thing as opposed to i really try to let's pick something close let's pick something that you've identified as your biggest sources of waste and let's let you embrace on going after that and when i go into organizations i get them to sign up for 30 days at a time so it's, it, it's reversible. They can try it. If it's not working, they can change path. And as I go in a lot of organizations, they want the two-year plan. They want the three-year plan. And I just want to get them started on that road to continuous improvement. And I want to, I want to get them to get some wins and, and see how it can work and then continue to support going on that. And the more we can do that, the better it is and the more we can let them pick. So what I've tried to do with the white belt training is just teach people the concept, show them how to analyze it, show it how they can pick. And with the green belt, to get a green belt, you've got to do an improvement project. So map out your process, make it visible to everybody, get people excited about making an improvement. It's going to take four to six months for a specific for a typical green belt, go in and analyze it, figure out where you can improve, pick something that you believe will help you as an organization achieve your objectives and remove waste and inefficiencies, make the change, monitor the metrics that show that you made an improvement and share those back. And that's how you get a green belt. But it's it's also how you kind of do a self-generating ROI that shows the benefits of this approach and making improvements and changing it. And it, it doesn't mean that you have to do DevOps, but I think you should think about automating a lot of things and going to smaller batch sizes that would enable you to become more efficient. And Gary, I had I had two two questions, maybe for you, but maybe also for Rosalind, and then another statement. So it almost seems like maybe correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you do this, but you know, you go into one of these organizations, these enterprises, and they say, "Well, we have a problem with," um, you know, I'll just come up with something arbitrary. We'll just say, "Like, well, we have a problem with," um, you know, we want to we want to c- continuously deploy, you know, and then. it it almost makes sense to say, well, like, well, why do you want to do that? You know, or like what's preventing you from doing that right now? And then you go one, you, you know, you, you go down this ladder, you keep going down to down these levels until you, you get it to the, like the most root cause. Is that kind of what you're doing with the training that you, that you, that you're doing now? Um, I used to do a lot of workshops Mm -hmm. before I wasn't allowed to leave my house. And (laughs) and in the the workshops, I would spend time up front mapping out the process, trying to highlight what I thought was waste and inefficiencies, Mm -hmm. and then run a workshop with the team and go through the analysis and let them sort of pick the continuous improvements that they thought made most sense for them. What I realized 
is I'm not able to help as many people as I can. That doesn't scale for a personal one nearly as well. Mm. And it's more expensive for the clients. So I basically oh, okay. converted a lot of what I would do for workshops into a computer-based learning program. So they can gotcha. do that themselves mm. and then motivate people with Greenfield projects to do that. So it's, it's really teaching them how to analyze their software development and delivery processes so they can pick the ideas that they will champion making successful. So I'm not Got pushing it. for them to change. It's that whole reactance thing that Berger sure. talked about. I'm not pushing. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling. I'm teaching them how to do it and letting them pick. Sure. Okay, good. Um, second thing I had was you were mentioning um, – architecting, re-architecting, you know, if, if you can, of course you should, but maybe, you know, in all situations you might, you, you might not, it might not be practical. And you mentioned this idea of low hanging fruit. Um, I'm curious in, you know, in your experience with working with enterprises, what are, you know, what are some examples of that low hanging fruit? The reason I teach people how to analyze their things is every organization I go into has different challenges, different issues. Yeah. And that experiment that Roslyn was talking about how to, get a stable quality signal highlights a lot of different things. And there's things that you wouldn't even imagine. But one of the biggest things I see common is the thing that Rosin was talking about is this shift to building in quality and expecting mm. people to respond to it and do smaller batch sizes. And this is probably especially important for your Z customers. Think about an automobile manufacturing facility that would build up inventory for months at a time before they tried to assemble anything and see if it worked together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then he would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that's how we did things in software after all the time he spent trying to teach the world a better way. Yeah. But for large enterprise systems, that's the way we work. We, we build up huge amounts of inventory and we put it together and, the feedback we're giving developers as to the unintended consequences that they cause is so slow, it's so late, that yeah. we can't expect them to get any better. And then because we've gone to these large batch sizes, even if you're not going to deploy that often, which is what Rosalind was saying, if we can go to smaller batch sizes, it gets much quicker and easier to find the cause of the unintended consequences because there's fewer changes to look at. Sure. And when you look at software, because in, in manufacturing, if you try to assemble two things together and they don't fit, it's pretty obvious. With software, when you put huge amounts of lines of code together and they don't work as you intended, it's really hard to find the source of the problem. Mm-hmm. And if we can go to smaller batch sizes between when we test to make sure it's working and not that triage process just becomes hugely easier more efficient and more effective and that that is one of the biggest causes now the stable quality signal is really a challenge if if you're running your tests against the code and it's not finding code issues people are going to get frustrated and give up and quit looking at it so you know the first step i start with is can you run your test 20 times in a row and get the same answer gotcha if not your tests aren't very valuable 
Right. right? And, and there's, you know, can you do that in random order? Can you do that and fully load a system, which is a lot of these environments were built for manual testing. And if you run a bunch of automated tests in parallel against that environment, it's likely to time out. You're going to have something flaky in the system. And if you're asking your developers to respond to that feedback and they're not finding issues with their code, but they're wasting a lot of time and energy debugging environment issues or deployment issues or test issues, they're going to get frustrated and give up. So we need to take the time to slow down and get a stable quality signal. And it doesn't have to be a lot of tests. And then we're ready to ask people start responding to it. And as they get better at that, then we can increase what we ask them to respond to. But, you know, those are simple steps that you can do on anything, an SAP system, a Z system, you know, any large complex system that's going to provide advantages and help you win. And we need to create those systems and processes to enable our employees to be successful. Nice. Thank you. Um, all right, so we had these topics that were, that, that we that a combination of you and, and Rosalind sent over. I wanted to just list them off, just make sure that we're touching on them because we're you know we're getting towards the end uh, you know the end of our schedule here, and I wanted to make sure that you know we covered everything. Um, so the I've got four here: digital transformation for large enterprises. I'm just going to list them off, and you know, um, so we've got that. I think I think we touched touched mostly on that, right? Um, we've got large scale efforts with lots of legacy existing function. We've, we haven't been talking about that. And then we've, we've mostly covered getting people to invest in improvements and embrace new ways of working. Um, uh, and, and it, it, uh, I have the note here that says that, that says Gary is, Gary sees that as one of the biggest challenges for large organizations in trying to transform how they develop and deliver software. Um, and then the fourth is how Gary's training and certification process enables enterprises to achieve success. So, um, I think we've kind of like mostly hit those, those first two, the last one we have been talking about your training, but I, I, I'm not sure if we were like explicit in like how it works. And you've been talking about like the different colored belts and, you know, six Sigma and things like that. I mean, do you, do you, do you want to just touch on that? Give yourself a plug if you will. (laughs) I'll I'll hit on that and then I want to turn it over to Roslyn and have her ping me for stuff that she thinks people need to hear that I haven't hit yet. Right. Um, (laughs) What I tried to do with the training is it's broken into a white belt training that does everything that I typically have done in workshops. It's a, it's a video of me introducing a topic. It's some of the content from the book, it's knowledge checks and it's assessments. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 designed to train people how to analyze their processes and approaches and identify opportunities for improvement and how to get alignment across the organization, how to make that visible. It's just starting to roll out. And as I rolled it out to people who speak at DevOps Enterprise Summit and have been doing that for three or four years, they, their feedback is, I, I learned a lot. It, it forced me to think about it differently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply these concepts, and it's really valuable. And the point is not what you can teach them. The point is, what if everybody in your organization had that common level of understanding about how to analyze their processes, how to think about it? How much further would you be as, as a group being able to align on improvements and show progress and, and really make those 
the resistance to change go down and have people take ownership for driving their continuous improvement. So that's the, that's the white belt. It can be either taken on my website or in a large organization, you could go in and say, you know, I, I really want this to be part of my standard training process. Mm-hmm. It can be is SCORM compliant, which means it can be imported into a broad range of different learning management systems. And you could require people to take it in Q1 or Q2 or Q3, just like you would do you know, compliance training or sexual harassment training. It's something that you have to take. Okay. And then from an organizational change management you may want to say, hey, Chris, in your organization, I'd like to three, see three green belt projects this year. And Rosalind, you've got a bigger organization. I'd like to see five. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to let you pick. I'm going to let you pick something that's reasonable for you. And as you roll that out, I want to I want to see the results of those green belt projects. And as they, they go implement one, then they're able to come back with the results and show the return on investment of that improvement. And they'd be able to show waste. And that's really important if you're going to continue to have the momentum on your continuous improvement journey. You need to, one, get people to commit to implementing a change and embracing new ways of working. But two, you need to be able to broadly show the benefits to the organization so that they'll invest in the next level of improvement. So that's that's the green belt piece. And then the black belt is either for a large scale transformation, two to three year type of thing, as opposed to the green belt, which is a four to six month type of improvement project. Or for large organizations that want to roll this out, it's it's me certifying somebody in the organization to certify green belts because one of the things I want to make sure is that this certification is meaningful and it's rigorous. Mm-hmm. The challenge I have with a lot of things I see in the software industry is they're just, you know, check the boxes and figure out whether you know what this thing is. Sure. And it doesn't have the rigor. And, you know, I think the when I hear back from people like Brian Feensters of the world that this training was hard and it made him think and he learned something, um, those are the experts in the industry. I think the white belt has the rigor. And as I certify green belts, I want to do the first few in each organization just to make sure we've got worldwide rigor. But after that, sure. I don't want to spend my time in all these different organizations. So I want to identify black belts that can take over that certification and you know, what I've got out here is an initial framework for how to drive continuous improvement with engineering rigor in a systematic way for software. But, you know, that took 50 years in manufacturing and a lot of thought leaders. I want to start to engage people to continually improve the processes and the approaches so that they'll be more effective over time. So that's the that's kind of the training and certification. You can go to garygruber.com and get a link to the certification, learn more about it, or send me an email at gary at garygruber.com and uh, we can talk through what it would look like, how it would work for, for different organizations. So all right, that's the Excellent. plug piece. What I'm really interested yeah. in is what have we talked about that we should be talking about, Rosalind? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think, I mean, I think this has been wonderful because I, I think it helps continue the message of this transformation is hard, but we need to figure out the right ways to do it within each organization. And each organization is different and has a different set of challenges that they are facing right now. But you talk about measuring and metrics and how do you under show that you're improving 
what metrics do you recommend? Are there some standard metrics? Are there some standard ways to measure? Because, well, so some of the problem is some of this is productivity benefit, which is really hard to measure. Uh, some of it is speed, but if I'm not actually delivering faster for other reasons, then that's hard to measure. What are the kinds of things you recommend when measuring? Yeah, this, this I think, has been the age-old problem for software. How do you measure productivity? How do you measure that piece? You want to measure me in lines of code? I can copy and paste better than anybody and make a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's a bad measurement. I got that one. What are, yeah. Yeah, so, so the other one is, is lines of code. So I, I struggled with how to do that for years and how to measure that. And I think I got to where everybody else does. You can't really do that for software. And they started for HP. I figured, well, you had to go out in the organization and get a qualitative feel. And when I was trying to get a qualitative feel, what I found after consulting with a lot of people, well, that worked for me. I couldn't get any of the other executives out there spending time in the organization learning. And I learned the value of metrics. And while I can't measure productivity and throughput, what I think I have gotten really good at is measuring the waste that's slowing down flow. So anytime you have to debug and triage a deployment issue, that should be consistent and reliable because we can automate it and improve it over time, that's waste and inefficiency. Anytime I've got to debug and triage an environment issue, that's waste and inefficiencies. And I can I can make a change and then I can figure out how to improve. Anytime I've got to debug and triage a test issue, that's waste and inefficiencies. I also look at the time that it takes to flow through the deployment pipeline after we've made that visible and any delay in feedback. So if I gave you feedback on code you're writing this morning, this afternoon, Rosalind, you'd learn a lot from that and you'd become more productive. If, if I went and gave you feedback in, in two months for code that you're writing this morning, would you get any better? Would you learn anything? No. Right. And then the other side of that is it would probably take me about a week to figure out it wasn't it was you and it wasn't one of the Chris's or somebody else in the organization because I've got such a large batch size. It, it, there's a huge amount of waste and inefficiencies just in that debug and triage process that we get when we, you know, build up large batches of inventory and inspect in quality. And if we can move to that. So I really look at the the delay in feedback signal, because I figure anytime we've got a delay, we're on the larger batch sizes. And we're, you know, as Deming said, our job is to create systems and enable our employees to be successful. And for software, a big part of that is providing feedback to developers, changes that they made in code that had unintended consequences. And we need to provide that real time while they're thinking about it. I think uh, uh, the guys that, that uh, were responsible for the DevOps handbook, they referred to it as unplanned work, I think is how most people, people refer to it. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's unplanned. It, it's just wasting inefficiencies. We yeah. we can we can and should automate and fix things with, with mm-hmm. computers. We can't automate the coding and creation part of it because that's really a a creative process of interacting with the business to understand how best to achieve the objectives that are desired but the the manufacturing process of software of build the code 
create an environment, deploy the code, validate the code that can be released and how that comes together, that whole process, triage, that, that can be improved dramatically and yeah. can and should. But we really haven't trained people in the software industry to think about that as a process and sure. help them highlight the things that are slowing them down. And, you know, DevOps has kind of forced this because it said, let's increase the frequency. And when you're running at a really low frequencies, people, people can brute force and muscle their way through it. <laughs> when you really start to increase that frequency, you've got to fix it once and for all with automation. And that's a big part of the forcing function that's true driving a lot of these changes right well yeah. I'm, I'm done i'm done i'll let the adults talk Rosalind. Yeah. <laughs> i think that comment about that's <laughs> yeah, funny i think that comment about waste and inefficiencies and and measuring the lost time measuring the waste time measuring the flow are key ways to look at this and i i think if we can get our enterprises to focus on this continuous improvement by identifying the biggest waste or identifying a waste they can remove and then see the value and then keep moving forward is is a key aspect to this transformation that it makes it consumable, measurable, and for an enterprise deliverable because I can show that value. I, I can make that clear. And your other comment about I can brute force my way, I actually many times make the statement, if you give me a, a month for a release, I can figure out how to do that with manual testing. If you tell me I have to ship every two weeks, yeah, there's no way. So having something in the system that forces you to, and I don't like defined release cycles, it, it schedules should not be driving what we do, but we do need to figure out that what is that thing that actually gets people to shift to the thought process that automation is how I get past this problem. Automation helps me remove those errors, helps me allow people to focus on things they need their brain for instead of just repetitive manual tasks. And, and I think that kind of measurement, that kind of understanding in those metrics are key for us to recognize. And so I, I appreciate you bringing that up as the, the kind of measurements, because I really think that's important for people to recognize how can they measure this transformation and how can they show it's actually delivering value in the large scale enterprises where they're not going to deliver multiple times a day. They may not even deliver more than once a month, though they probably actually are. They say they're not. There's always a difference in that reality about the number of changes that actually go into production versus the claimed release cycles. But it's important to have those kind of metrics. So I think I think we've done a good job covering a lot of this topic of how to engineer the digital transformation and hopefully given people insights into what they can do. So I was wondering if you had just like a like a, like a, 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 a single story, you know, that relates to this, where you said to yourself, you know, something along the lines of like, holy crap, how did we get here? There, there's a, there's a case study in the training, their case study in the book of yeah. transformation at Optum technology, which is part of United health group. 
Oh, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, yep. and Ted Yule, you know, led the transformation and I went in there and did a workshop with him and then they got busy in a reorg and different things, but I yeah. followed up with him and coached him every month for, for three years. And he, nice. he, he started off by, you know, we went in and they were doing agile. They'd made an agile transformation and the agile mm-hmm. transformation was going good. And they'd written automated tests and they, they would go through this process of, I think it was, they had five two week iterations where they would write code and mm-hmm. you know, they'd do the sign off and they'd run the automated test, the new automated test for the new functionality at the end of each iteration. And then they'd go into their hardening phase where they inspected in quality and they would spend four weeks with 100% of the team just inspecting in quality and trying to bang out all the issues. And, sure. and that's where they'd rerun their automated tests again. And they would take the time to rerun those automated tests and they would start inspecting in quality and then they'd run the regression test. And, and my point was I first walked in there and I said, well, why don't you, you've got these automated tests. Why don't you run them every day and have people look at the feedback? <laughs> and, and you know, the Ted's boss's boss was there. It was like, well, well wait a minute. We don't do that. That, that seems pretty obvious and easy. Why don't, why don't we just do that? That seems that, that seems like a good idea. Let's let's try that. Oh no! And, and and Ted went through and started trying to run them. And what he was in a large, complex system running against a lot of large backend systems, and yeah. the backend systems were either not stable or, yeah. you know, somebody might in this large integrated test environment had been deploying code while he was trying to run tests. Oh no. He wasn't controlled and wasn't managed. So his first step was he had to mock out those backend systems. So he had a stable place to run it against. Yeah. And then he started to do that and he realized that, you know, he needed his environment working right so he had to you know they they moved to a an open shift type of environment that had the environments under control and the deployment okay. process work and and then he realized all his automated tests weren't unstable they were unstable and they're unreliable so it was it, you know they had a major release they had to get done so ted didn't call me for three or four months and they you know they had a reorg and he lost his devops guy and you know it, it just on and on but he kept plugging away and at the yeah. end of you know three years he he, he moved to containers he you know, was using Kubernetes. He yeah. had his tests fixed. He had the backend systems mocked. And now he was, you know, he, you know, it shows that over time it was, you know, he gradually started to where he went from, you know, a hundred percent of the people for four weeks to 50% of the people for four weeks to 20% of the people for two weeks doing the hardening phases to now where he's, you know, able and efficiently able to release every two weeks without a hardening phase because he's building in quality and his, you know, his feedback was, wow, this is such a breakthrough, Gary, we should write a book. And I was like, Beautiful. wait a minute, I thought I already did. <laughs> just watching the, watching somebody who's finally gotten a stable quality signal and the value yeah. it can provide for aligning the organization and just the, the, the eyes opening and the realization of what a difference it can be was just, it's, it's fun to watch. That's all. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's like when he had that, when you had that aha moment, it uncovered not, not necessarily a problem, but like that enlightenment led to 
other things, you know, like, oh, okay, well, we, we got, well, if we're going to fix this, then that means we got to fix this. And oh, if we're going to fix that, then we means we got to fix that. And, you know, it just kind of like, you know, splintered and it just kind of extended outward almost is what it seems like. That's, that's pretty neat. And, and it required plugging away, right? You yeah. Know, he lost his people and he had to get going. And he had to get, but he just kept chipping away at it, chipping away yeah. at continuous improvement and delivered dramatic results. And That's awesome. Just it, it, watching the lights come on just fundamentally changed his world. It was, it, yeah, and and that's why I do this. I'm passionate about helping people realize what I've done, and you know, if, if, if the book isn't it, if the training isn't it, and get, give me feedback because I'm that. That's my that's my passion and energy is trying to help others achieve these results. And if what I'm doing is not getting there, um, I, I need feedback just like anybody else to figure out how to do it better. Sure. Well, good job, Ted. Everybody needs a Ted. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a great example of getting that stable quality signal and getting that really fast feedback. And yeah. people need to do that. And it's not it's the back end systems, it's the front end systems, it's a mid tier. All of those systems need that ability to get that fast feedback. And it's good to hear stories when it actually works. The, the other one was at HP. We we branched at HP for every you know every six month release, and we were managing ten branches. And as Kellen us came in, I, I knew one thing: we couldn't live with the branches. And so, so as we do this new architecture, we're not going to branch. And the head of quality and release just wanted to talk about branches for like three years with me, or two years anyway. And, and I kept saying, we're not going to branch, Troy. We're not going to branch. And it's fine. he kept arguing and arguing. It's like driving him crazy. And finally, finally, we got to the end of the first, we got, we got everything working and the quality feedback and everything was working. And it'd been a long journey and we're getting ready for our first big release. And it's like, okay, Troy, we need to figure out how to branch. He's like, branch, what are you kidding me? And lose all the efficiency he's got. What are you talking about? So, <laughs> It's really taking people from something they could never imagine working, yeah. something they can't imagine living without. That's cool. That's good. That's a that's a great spot to end. Chris, do you have anything? How are you? How are you? How are you? I'm great, Chris. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, man. I don't no, no, know, no, you know? no, no, no. Um, you got just, the newborn, you know. I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just concerned, you know. Like I said, no, I'm gathering all the to another co-host. I'm, you know, I'm just looking out for you. That's all. Thanks, man. That's what I love about this podcast. It's just the love. <laughs> um, no, I'm good. This is a, you know, as usual, fantastic conversation. Um, it was really interesting to me hearing someone well hearing two powerhouses like Gary and Rosalind discuss uh you know just some of the challenges that come with enterprise transformation and more specifically getting confirmation of that that cultural piece is really so 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 important but also poses one of the biggest hurdles um it's it's like one of those things where you you know your 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 back's hurting you for years and you finally go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis from someone who's qualified it's great to hear that because you know when i'm teaching my courses and when i'm teaching you know the idz class and making the idz basics online course and other other technologies i work with there are just there are so many people that i run into that are doing or exhibiting behaviors and sort of pushing back exactly in the ways that Gary and Rosalind are speaking about. So it's just, it's wonderful. It's cathartic really. So thank wow, you guys for, powerful. thank you guys for joining the, uh, the podcast and, and having the discussions that we've had. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks. Thanks so much, Rosalind. Thanks Gary. Happy to do it. Thanks yeah. for having me.